Hey, Josh Felber here with Making Bank. Do you have a business right now? Are you stuck in that five to six figure range? Have you wanted to make sure your business has that breakthrough to seven figures? Today's guest is gonna be able to give you some insights and some strategies on how to do that from systems, from processes, and different ways that you can market yourself and your business without spending more time uh, trading time for dollars. So got to check out today's episode. And uh, guys, I appreciate your time and attention watching, listening to Making Bank. Take some notes when you watch the show. Make sure you guys like and share this. Guests love it when you comment below. Uh, they come back and love to answer your questions. And share this episode with somebody that you know that needs to hear it, somebody, a friend or a family member that would love to hear this episode as well. And again, thank you for your time watching Making Bank. You are, you are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Super honored and excited for today's guest, Dr. Noah St. John, Brett Barish, Bob Mesta, Cameron Harold, Rudy Maurer, John Livesey, Kyle McDowell. Basically utilizing those systems because obviously, you know, we, we have challenges and, you know, having those right systems to guide us, to kind of give us that path to grow and to hit that, you know, first seven figures. What is a kind of like that secret formula or what is it, what are those first steps to that system that we need to start taking a look at? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and that's exactly what I what I go over in the book, in Seven Figure Expert book. And you mentioned, you know, everybody watching can get the book for free, you know, at the website, the sevenfigureexpertbook.com. And so it really comes down to uh, my five-stage seven-figure expert formula. That's what I call it. It's five phases. And really, it comes down to your beliefs, your habits, offers, funnels, and traffic. Mm. So after spending all that money, all that time, and, you know, lots of lots of false starts, lots of you know, detours and, and whatever, and, and, you know, falling off the cliff many times, <laughs> you know, because they're like, Dick, you ever hear that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I realize it really boils down to those, those five things. So what's interesting is that the beliefs and habits is really comes under the inner game, like I was talking about a moment ago. So what's also fascinating is that, you know, all, so all that money that I've helped people make, my clients, you know, really 95% of it is inner game. But you still need that that five percent. That's the outer game, which it's really more like eighty twenty, right? If you right. Want, if you want to say it's like you know eighty percent inner game, twenty percent outer game. But you got to have it, right? So when you look at your offers, funnels, and traffic, and that's what I go over, you know, in, in the book, is that you you really have to understand. And there's so many marketing people out there that say, you know, look, everything is your offer, and that's a that's a really strong point because if you don't have the right offer nothing else matters, mm. right? You, you just don't. And nothing else matters unless you have that right offer. And then, of course, you have to have the right funnels, which is how you sell it. And then you need the traffic, which is you got to get your offer and your funnel in front of the eyeballs, the, the right people that, you know, will give you money. So, I mean, I like to keep things very simple after spending all this time and money, you know, an insane amount of money and time trying to figure all this out and piece it together. I like to really keep things simple. And that's one of the reasons why my clients get very fast results because it's like, oh my gosh, thank you. I, I you know, I, and, and the other thing I want to mention is that when you're really getting to that six figure level, you know, as you're starting your business or growing it, you're probably doing almost everything yourself. I mean, you mm, know, that certainly was right. true for me. I was doing everything myself. I mean, you know, you're the, you're the CEO, the CFO, the, 
the, the internet marketer, the copywriter, the chief bottle washer, and, and you got to be your own cheerleader too. <laughs> you yeah. know, you got you to gotta pump yourself up on those mornings. You're like, ah, do I really want to do this? You know, it's like sometimes you, you get the, some days you get the bear and some days the bear gets you, you know, and it's tough. It's tough when you're your own cheerleader, when you have to do everything. And so once you get to that, that, you know, that six figure level, you realize I, I can't do everything anymore. You, you just can't. And so that's why what we want for for you, for you know, for the expert, for the entrepreneur, is we want the systems working hard for you, so you don't have to work so hard. Obviously, your your stories, your flavor profiles, and things like that. But what else has set you apart to actually you know make you rise to the top? You know, there's not. You know, I'm sure you. I I don't have a black box. I think it's. I think our success is blood, sweat, and tears, and we're all in, and it's night and day. It's it's constantly educating and constantly talking to people. You gotta have everything. I don't. I I think you know. People ask me about a brand. The package has got to stand out. The name's got to be different. The look and feel's got to be different. It's gonna have a story. It's gotta taste good. You gotta have a beautiful package. And if they don't like the taste, they're never gonna come back. Right. You have a great tasting product, but if they don't notice the product, they're never going to try it. So you've got to have a little bit of everything and work your ass off. And that's what we do. I, I remember, you know, I remember um, speaking at a Citibank conference and, and before it was about disruptive brands, Josh. Uh, and the panel before me was the founder of, of Casper, you know, the bed company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was amazing. After one year, he had, you know, they were on all the continents and a billion in sales, and was one of those unicorns. And I kept thinking, but when I got up there, if you want to hear that story, that's not my story. I don't know how to do that. Yeah, uh, for me, it's been it's been working our ass off, building people who believe in what we're doing, building a team of two hundred people now who are getting behind it. And it's, it's hard work. There's nothing else. It's just hard work. What's something you're like, okay, man, I really wanted to talk about this, but Josh hasn't asked me yet. Or I just got to make sure I share this with the audience. I will always lean in on my failures, Josh. So for me, it's for people listening out there, I've got lots of things I say to my team and that I stress, which is, is you got to, if you're launching a business, you got to trust your instincts. Don't let somebody else. That was, again, one of my huge mistakes is I assumed everyone's smarter than me. Everyone knows better than me. Everyone's been in the industry longer than me. But at the end of the day, if you're going to jump into a business, it's got to be your decisions. You can take people's input, but trust your gut. If, if anybody's going to screw it up, like I said earlier, it should be you. I think sometimes having a plan, Josh, sometimes not having a plan is a good plan because it shows you have the ability to pivot and to pivot quickly. You know, if I had a, a year-long plan in place from a marketing perspective or, you know, what I want to achieve, and if I stuck to it and was wrong day one, I'm going to be wrong for the next 360 days. You got to pivot. You got to pivot quickly. And that's another thing I've learned every day when some, you got you to rip it apart. Anybody can justify anything, but rip it apart and decide, is this really working? Should we, should we switch it? Should we move differently? And we're good at that. We're good at leaning. We're good at what I call letting brand, letting things breathe. Don't assume you've got the right answer. Let it go and see which way it works and then lean in on it. Um, that's awesome. Can I tell the audience a little bit about, I mean, obviously you've owned uh, multiple different types and styles of companies and everything else. 
what for you was kind of your common success thread between all these different companies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think the the one of the common threads is that one is is I love technical things, but in the end, I really like helping people. And what I realized very early on is that people actually don't know what they want. And if you ask them what they want, they can't tell you. And so I went and learned, I went and learned criminal and intelligence interrogation back in the late 80s on how to actually talk to people about what they're really trying to do. And uh, the way I frame it is what progress are they trying to make? Ultimately, that, that people don't buy products, they hire them to do a job in their life. And if I can figure out what the job is, then I can design the product. And so the, the big difference is most people come up with a product and then try to find people to sell it to. And I go sure. find a, a, a body of people who are, who are struggling to do something, and I actually go invent something for them. And then ultimately, that's how, I, that's how I've been so successful is focusing on what I call the demand side, which is where, where do people want to make progress, but they can't. And then it's easy to actually pull the technology together to actually make it fit into people's lives. But if I try to start from the technology side, I literally have to go find, you know, I have to sort through millions of people to say who wants to buy my product. And it makes it 10 times harder. And so I, 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 I call it right to left thinking. Most people think left to right where it's like the product and then the market and then the customer. And then but I think about the customer and the struggling moment and go backwards to, to basically figure it out. And so that's a great question to, is, you know, we think, okay, cool. I love this. This is something that's helped me. And, you know, I got to be able to get it out there and, and, and share it with the world. So that's kind of the, the other direction. And so then how do you then turn on, take that and say, okay, we want to work it backwards. Yeah. But then that might not even be the right product that you're even thinking of. <laughs> That's exactly right. So a lot of times, so I have a small design firm right now, and this is my seventh startup. And, and, and um, for me, it's, it's always starting with where is the struggling moment in the market? And then how do we actually then take what resources you have and kind of aim it at that struggling moment? And so a lot of times people will have a product and, it, and they launch it and it fails. And I'll come back and go like, okay, let's look at this thing. We actually reframe it around kind of that struggling moment. And we can take something that didn't work because they're trying to make it too big or too, too complicated where, to be honest, I can strip it back and actually make it very focused on something and then help it grow. And so it's almost mm. like uh, you know, being a gardener more, more so than a, than, a, than a launcher of products. You have to be able to nurture it and you have to know the right soil and the right everything wrapped around it to help people kind of figure out how to fit it into their lives. So I've worked with people like Casper and, and you know, help them build that business. Um, I've, I've, I've worked with Basecamp. I don't know if you know who Basecamp is yeah. out of Chicago. Yeah. I've worked with them. Um, and all these different companies. And it's really about making sure that we understand the demand first and then figure out how to shape the product to fit demand. What's a couple of things through the different companies you've worked with over the years from a growth standpoint that people need to take a look at and do in their business to go from that one to five, the five to 10? Yeah. So, and I call it the ones and threes. You go from one to three, from three to 10, 10 okay. to 30, 30 to 100. They're defined points. When you're going from one to three, it's hiring a couple of good people that you really like that are good at a whole bunch of general things, but they're not experts. When you go to 10, it's about hiring your first person that can manage people. They're not an expert, but they're good at, they're good at, at project management. They're good at time management. They're good at getting shit done. They're good at delegation and people like them. When you go to 30, it's about getting your first management team in place, probably four or five people that manage everybody else in the business for you 
You have to like them. You have to respect them. They have to be good at people. They have to be good at their domain expertise. Not again, necessarily deep domain experts, but good enough that, you know, you've got some confidence in them. When you go from 30 to hundred employees, that's when you hire your first leadership team, deep domain expertise. None of those five or six people reporting to you, you couldn't do their job anymore. They're just way better at that specific area than you are. And your job is to align people, to grow people, to remove obstacles from people, almost to flip the org chart upside down. Those are kind of some of the people things. And then I think that at every stage of the company, we need to invest in our people, right? The more we grow their skills, the more we grow their confidence, the more they'll grow the company for us. And that's great. What, um, like, what are some key points or some key ideas there investing back in those employees? Like, what are like, hey, you know, these are great things to do for that. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, one is a dead obvious for me is I, I launched a course a, a year and a half ago called Invest in Your Leaders, and it's got the 12 core leadership skills that all managers need to be good at that most entrepreneurs have never been trained in. You know, I'll give you an example. You've hired people before, right? You've done job interviews? For sure, yes. How much training have you ever had on doing interviews? Just what you can learn and read and try to figure out. <laughs> so you've never really had a formal instruction? Not a formal. Training, right? Right. Uh, imagine being an, uh, being a, the, the, uh, do we know any of the best athletes in the world that have just read some books on it? No, they've had coaches, they've practiced, they've role played, they've, they've, you know, trained on stuff. They've, they've watched videotapes of it all. That's training. How much training have you ever had on delegating or on time management or on coaching or on situational leadership or on running effective meetings or on handling conflict? None. Right. We have all these entrepreneurial organizations that are trying their best, but have never had any training other than reading a book. And then, so then we have the blind leading the blind and we have all these entrepreneurs running around saying business is difficult. No, business is really simple. If you would actually train your employees, like we would train, you know, your kids are, are getting training at actually driving race cars or kids right. training at playing football. Well, let's train our employees, train our managers on the 12 core leadership skills business gets really simple at that point, right? Then, then it's about getting more shit done with less people faster. That's what I did at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. That's what I work behind the scenes with companies on is growing their skill set around not what they do, but how they do it. I know, obviously, you know, you have a massive vision that you're driving towards, you know, a road to, you know, a billion. What are kind of this, and you help other companies uh, you know, focus and create a big Pro. vision, obviously with your island yeah. and you're bringing people yeah. to and everything else. What's kind of the, the steps you take people through or you go through for that to make sure you're on the right track to go after that big vision? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it starts with like the end goal, right? And then like, what, it, what drives you and what are you, what are you passionate about? It's like people talk about burnout. I've never had burnout and I work more than most people. I think what burnout is, is when you lose a bit of the vision or the path forward or the future. Right now, of course, there's physiological if you're not sleeping and eating right. I get that, sure. sure. But like part of it is like I'm working more than ever now. I'm more maybe potentially stressed than ever. I'm more like busier than ever. I've got like more risk than ever because I'm way bigger, right? But I'm like more fulfilled and like passionate and I wake up with that drive than I ever have before. So for a lot of you, it's like, and it doesn't come right away. You can't just sit in a room and figure it out. It takes time and, you know, time to think about it. But keep working on that vision and that why, because that why is so strong and it's going to keep pushing you. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is like, you know, figuring out like what you stand for, right? The brand and the offers and everything I talked about there. 
And then it's like, I'm a big data guy. You wouldn't maybe think it because I'm all this loud outrageous, but I'm, <laughs> I'm like a sports scientist and I used to run data and I have peer reviewed studies as a scientist. So, and I was top of my maths class, a chess champion. So I got this unique brain of like creative influencer, but I can equally hold my own in operations, data, numbers, right? So it's like, for me, it's combining the two. It's like, okay, we want to get here. Well, then how, how much revenue do we need per day? How many new hires do we need? How many sales reps? How many phone calls do we need? How much are we got to spend on ads? How many new folks? Like, so I, I drive everything through data because to me that gives you the little the stepping stones to hit the big goal. Yeah, no, that's, and I think, um, you know, data is huge and a lot of people skip that part of it because yeah. they don't understand it. It, it, it becomes just a jumble of numbers and yeah, i mean i talk to 10 million dollar businesses i'm like hey how much you spend in a day what's your cpa right cost per sale right what's your how much is a customer worth how much are you doing via email and all of them are like i don't know 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 you know and it's like you just figure that out and it becomes like i explain it like you know if you get to a movie theater and they light up the stairs when it's dark if you're late <laughs> right that's what data does for your business, right? If you're successful, obviously, if you're not making any money right now, figure out how to sell stuff and make money, right? But if you get to a point where you're like a million dollar plus business, the data will give you that light up and it'll show you what's good, what's bad, what I should scale. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. That's a cool way to uh, visualize it. Um, one of the things I really liked is you talked about like, um, you know, think like you're the founder. And I know Jesse Itzler talks about that some and, and Sarah Blakely and stuff. So I Curious kind of like what your take is on that. Yeah, you know, as especially in bigger companies, my connection as an employee with the outcome of the company, the good the company does, the value the company brings to the organization, that connection is often very fractured or doesn't exist at all. That's why I'm so adamant about principles, by the way. Mission statements, corporate vision, those things are important, but rarely do they actually connect the frontline employee, the person who's actually responsible for getting the work done and wowing your customers, rarely do they connect that person with the overall charter of the company. You know, mission statements, they sound great. They look good on a wall and T-shirts, maybe great bumper stickers, but they don't tell me how to behave in a way or compel me to behave in a way that delivers excellence. So thinking like the founder uh, reconnects that connection or it, re, it re-energizes that connection rather. If I think like the founder and I recognize something has an opportunity for improvement or I see someone's not pulling their own weight or they're phoning it in, the founder's not going to stand for that. So if you think like the founder, you take on ownership, uh, which is an uncomfortable word for a lot of folks and is ownership. But I think <laughs> yeah. it's so important if you want to be successful and lead a team and a culture of excellence. Yeah, no, I think that's super important. And I, I really like what you talk about with that is, is, you know, think like the founder, which is, you know, taking ownership in what you're, what you're doing. What have you seen like throughout your journey and stuff, you know, as you come in and you have employees that are not taking ownership, what's kind of that process or ways to be able to engage them and to start to do that? Yeah, there's a, you know, there's another we here that I've got to introduce that I think matters a lot when we want folks to take action. And it's the very subsequent we, it's we own our mistakes. Because if you, if you want people to take risks, if you want folks to address items or areas of opportunity, but by the way, they're broken because no one has addressed it or they're not addressing it appropriately. So if you want your team to address those broken items or address the areas of opportunity, you have to let them be comfortable and, and encourage and create an environment where people are comfortable making mistakes. 
we got to own those mistakes, though, because the worst thing that happens is we make a mistake, we hide it, and it kind of perpetuates over and over again until it blows up into something massive, right? But I cannot encourage my team to take action, to challenge one another, to embrace those challenges, to obsess over details if I don't allow them some space to make a mistake. So it's really important when those mistakes are made, you lead by example and you pick up the person that made the mistake. You assure them or reassure to them that they have value on the team. I'm not naive enough to admit that there aren't mistakes that are fatal, right? There are people that make, they have big screw ups. And I like to kind of refer to those <laughs> as mistakes of malice because they didn't care enough or they just, they did it on purpose. I'm talking about mistakes right. that are made out of genuine effort to be better, mistakes that are made because we're not comfortable with where we are in our progress or the mediocrity we're delivering. So you've got to create that environment. Otherwise, none of that's going to happen. And we number two is we lead by example. So anytime I recognize an opportunity and my team around me see me not take action on it, assign someone to it, or roll my sleeves up and take action on it myself, that example that I'm setting means everything else is a house of cards and I'm a hypocrite. So you have to live the principles that you establish and it's much easier to hold others accountable to those same principles if you're living it every single day. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's, that's super important. I think that's huge you know, with that is definitely owning the mistakes. What you talked a little bit about, I think that's pivotal is like a lot of people are afraid to own those mistakes. Like, Oh, I'm going to get fired or I'm going to get written up or, you know, I don't want to bring it to your attention. (laughs) So how do we encourage or how do we get them to feel comfortable with that opportunity? You've got to be real about it. So when I make a mistake, I don't hide from it. I think a lot of bosses err in that way. They have to be or, or put off this air of perfection. They sit on this, what I call a, a perfection pedestal. When I make a mistake, the first person to admit it to is a member of my team because they usually have, have an answer or can help me find the answer. So leading by example, when I screw up, just saying so. But also, this is a contagious principle, if you will. If someone on the team makes a mistake, whether they owned it and brought it to you or not or whether it was brought to your attention by some other means, how you handle that mistake, how you handle the employee or the team member that made that mistake tells the rest of the team, you're, you're serious about this, owning our mistakes, and you're serious about picking each other up, and you're serious that this is not an environment of retribution. Again, some mistakes should be dealt with swiftly. There's no question. But if a mistake is made from a genuine, genuine effort to be better, then you've got to allow for that mistake and encourage people to make those same efforts. The first time it happens, you react in a way that is, you know, that has some type of retribution or you smack around somebody for making a mistake. The rest of the team is not going to be on board with that principle and you've become a hypocrite. So live it. Yeah, no, I think that's super important. I mean, and that kind of even applies back, you know, to your kids or anything like that as well, too. So, you know, whether it's uh, your team Josh, or your team of kids. Since you, <laughs> since you mentioned that, a really, really quick story. I, um, I used to have a fella on the team who had, I think at the time his son was maybe five or six years old. And in this particular organization, we had 10 Wee's coffee cups, coffee mugs mm. made. And his son would eat cereal out of the coffee mug every morning. One morning, his son had an accident. He, he tipped over the coffee cup. Cereal was everywhere. He looks up at dad and says, it's okay, dad. We own our mistakes. I'll clean it up. How, how impactful was that to me, man, that those principles, they transcended the workplace, and now he's got his five-year-old living the same thing. So it also sets the example that, and it shows the example, that when you live it every single day, the impact you have on those around you, and obviously his son has heard him say that multiple times. Right. No, that's awesome. That that's super cool. 
um, you know, to be able to see that ingrained, you know, with what you teach and what you're doing in your culture at work, um, back to your family and everything for sure. So right on. what's kind of the whole message or thought process behind that, um, yeah, you know, be yeah. the lifeguard of your own life. It's unlike in a hurricane, no one's going to come rescue you when disaster happens. And we've all embraced disaster and change and disruption with the pandemic, right? Did anybody come help you? No, you had to figure it out on your own. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like you're going to be homeschooling your kids. If you've got kids, you're going to have to figure out how to set your home office up. You're going to have to do, you're not going to be able to do all the, you know, you're like, well, I got to be my own lifeguard. We're in a disruptive situation. And so whether you get laid off from a job is what my TEDx talk was about, or you deal through a pandemic or, or last yesterday I was on an airplane coming back from a talk in Ottawa, Canada, and we were on the jetway at 630 in the morning and they go, everybody back. The uh, FAA has announced that there's a problem with the computers and no one's flying into the States until they figure that out. It's going to be three hours minimum. I got to be my own lifeguard. I'm on my phone right. booking my next, you know, I'm never going to make that connection back to Austin. I got to figure out that, you know, if this, I got to not sit passively waiting wait for the airline to figure out how to rebook me. Because all the seats will be gone by then, right? Because somebody else who knows how to use their phone will be taking whatever seats are open on the next flight out. Because uh, uh, I'm definitely missing my connection. So that is an example of being the lifeguard of your own life. No, that's great. Uh, we got a little bit of time left. Um, what's something you're like, oh, man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this. Or I, I know I really need to share it because it's going to make a huge impact on the listeners. I would say that my big mission in life is to help as many people as possible get off the self-esteem roller coaster. I was on it. It's exhausting. You only feel good about yourself if you're winning and you're hitting your goals and you feel bad if you've got a rejection or you're laid off or whatever else might happen. That who we are is bigger than any one thing happening to us at any time. So think of yourself as the movie director of your own life. Zoom out and say, I can yell cut. I can recast this. I can change the location. I don't have to keep playing out this horror movie in my head of what the future is going to be because a lot of entrepreneurs have a lot of sleepless nights worrying about the future. Say cut, be in the present moment, and realize that who you are is bigger than any one thing happening to you. Mm, that's great. I am Josh Felber. You were watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.